Section 10 of Reminiscences and Table Talk of Samuel Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I knew Joseph Wharton well. When Matthias attacked him in the pursuits of literature for reprinting some loose things in his edition of Pope, Joseph wrote a letter to me in which he called Matthias his pious critic. Rather an odd expression to come from a clergyman. He certainly ought not to have given that letter of Lord Cobham. I never saw Thomas Wharton. I once called at the house of Robinson, the bookseller for Dr. Kippers, who used to introduce me to many literary parties, and who that evening was to take me to the Society of Antiquaries. He said, Tom Wharton is upstairs. How I now wish that I had gone up and seen him. His little poem, The Suicide, is a favourite of mine. Nor did I ever see Gibbon or Cooper or Horace Walpole. And it is truly provoking to reflect that I might have seen them. There is no doubt that Matthias wrote The Pursuits of Literature, and a dull poem it is, though the notes are rather piquant. Gilbert Wakefield used to say that he was certain that Rennell and Glynn assisted Matthias in it, and Wakefield was well acquainted with all the three. Stevens once said to Matthias, Well, sir, since you deny the authorship of the pursuits of literature, I need have no hesitation in declaring to you that the person who wrote it is a liar and a blackguard." In one of the notes was a statement that Bellow had received help from Porson in translating our cipher. Porson accordingly went to Bellow and said, As you know, I did not help you. Pray write to Matthias and desire him to alter that note. In a subsequent edition, the note was altered. One day I asked Matthias if he wrote the pursuits of literature, and he answered, My dear friend, can you suppose that I am the author of that poem when there is no mention made in it of yourself? Some time after, I happened to call on Lord Bessborough, who told me that as he was illustrating the pursuits of literature with portraits, he wanted to get one of me. Why? exclaimed I. There's no mention in it of me. He then turned to the note where I am spoken of as the banker who dreams of Parnassus. What popularity Cooper's task enjoyed! Johnson, the publisher, told me that in consequence of the great number of copies which had been sold, he made a handsome present to the author. In order to attain general popularity, a poem must have what it is creditable to our countrymen that they look for, a strong religious tendency, and must treat of subjects which require no previous knowledge in the readers. Cooper's poems are of that description. Here are two fine lines in Cooper's task. Knowledge is proud that he has learned so much. Wisdom is humble that he knows no more. Sometimes in his rhymed poetry the verses run with all the years of prose, for instance. The path of sorrow, and that path alone, leads to the land where sorrow is unknown. Cumberland was a most agreeable companion and very entertaining converser. His theatrical anecdotes were related with infinite spirit and humour. 
His description of Mrs. Siddons, coming off the stage in the full flush of triumph and walking up to the mirror in the green room to survey herself, was admirable. He said that the three finest pieces of acting which he had ever witnessed were Garrick's Lear, Henderson's Falstaff, and Cook's Iago. When Cumberland was composing any work, he never shut himself up in his study. He always wrote in the room where his family sat, and did not feel the least disturbed by the noise of his children at play beside him. Lord Holland and Lord Lansdowne, having expressed a wish to be introduced to Cumberland, I invited all the three to dine with me. It happened, however, that the two lords paid little or no attention to Cumberland, though he said several very good things, scarcely speaking to him the whole time. Something had occurred in the house which occupied all their thoughts, and they retired to a window and discussed it. Mitford, the historian of Greece, possessed besides his learning a wonderful variety of accomplishments. I always felt the highest respect for him. When, not long before his death, I used to meet him in the street, bent almost double and carrying a long staff in his hand, he reminded me of a venerable pilgrim just come from Jerusalem. His account of the Homeric age of the Sicilian cities and several other parts of his history are very pleasing. Lane made a large fortune by the immense quantity of trashy novels which he set forth from his Minerva Press. I perfectly well remember the splendid carriage in which he used to ride and his footmen with their cockades and gold-headed canes. Nowadays, as soon as a novel has had its run and is beginning to be forgotten, out comes an edition of it as a standard novel. In company with my sister, I paid a visit to Gilbert Wakefield when he was in Dorchester Jail. His confinement was made as pleasant to him as possible, for he had nearly an acre of ground to walk about in, but still the sentence passed upon him was infamous. What rulers we had in those days! Footnote Gilbert Wakefield was born in 1736 and entered Holy Orders. In 1790 he joined a dissenting college at Hackney, but soon left it. Subsequently published pamphlets against public worship and government, and finally a famous letter to Watson, Bishop of Landau, for which he was prosecuted and imprisoned. He died shortly after his release in 1801. End of footnote. Wakefield gave Bellow some assistance in translating Aulus Gellius. At a splendid party given by Lord Hampden to the Prince of Wales, etc., I saw Lady Hamilton go through all those attitudes which have been engraved, and her performance was very beautiful indeed. Her husband, Sir William, was present. Lord Nelson was a remarkably kind-hearted man. I have seen him spin a teetotum with his one hand a whole evening for the amusement of some children. I heard him once, during dinner, utter many bitter complaints, which Lady Hamilton vainly attempted to check, of the way he had been treated at court that forenoon. The Queen had not condescended to take the slightest notice of him. 
In truth, Nelson was hated at court. They were jealous of his fame. There was something very charming in Lady Hamilton's openness of manner. She showed me the neckcloth which Nelson had on when he died. Of course, I could not help looking at it with extreme interest, and she threw her arms round my neck and kissed me. She was latterly in great want, and Lord Stowell never rested till he procured for her a small pension from government. Parson Este was well acquainted with Mrs. Robinson, the once celebrated Perdita, and said that Fox had the greatest difficulty in persuading the Prince of Wales to lend her some assistance when towards the close of life she was in very straitened circumstances. Este saw her funeral, which was attended by a single mourning coach. One morning, I was about to mount my horse to ride into London to the banking-house, when, to my astonishment, I read in the newspapers that a summons had been issued to bring me before the Privy Council. I immediately proceeded to Downing Street and asked to see Mr. Dundas. I was admitted, and I told him that I had come to inquire the cause of the summons which I had seen announced in the newspapers. He said, Have you a carriage here? I replied, a hackney coach. Into it we got. And there was I, sitting familiarly with Dundas, whom I had never before set eyes on. We drove to the Home Office, and I learned that I had been summoned to give evidence in the case of William Stone, accused of high treason. Long before this, I had met Stone in the Strand, when he told me, among other things, that a person had arrived here from France to gather the sentiments of the people of England concerning a French invasion, and that he, Stone, would call upon me and read to me a paper on that subject. I said, You will infect me with the plague, and reparted. In the course of a few days he did call with the paper. After the government had laid hold of Stone, he mentioned his intercourse with me, and hence my summons. When his trial took place, I was examined by the Attorney-General and cross-examined by Erskine. For some time before the trial, I could scarce get a wink of sleep. The thoughts of my appearance at it made me miserable. Samuel Rogers, Esquire, sworn, examined by Mr. Attorney-General. Question. You know Mr. William Stone? Answer. Yes. Question. Do you know Mr. Herford Stone? Answer. I have known him many years. Question. Do you recollect having any conversation? And if you do be so good as state to my lord and the jury what conversation you had with Mr. William Stone relative to an invasion of this country? Answer. He met me, I think it was in the month of March 1794, in the street. He stopped me to mention the receipt of a letter from his brother at Paris on the arrival of a gentleman who wished particularly to collect the sentiments of the people of this country with respect to a French invasion. Our conversation went very little further, for it was in the street. Question. Do you recollect what you said to him, if you said anything? Answer. I recollect that I rather declined the conversation. Question. I ask you not what you declined or did not 
decline. But what you said to him, if you said anything? Answer. I was in a hurry, and I believe all I said was to decline the conversation. Question. State in what language you did decline the conversation. Answer. I said that I had no wish to take any part whatever in any political transactions at that time. It was a time of general alarm, and I wished to shun even the shadow of an imputation, as I knew that when the minds of men were agitated, as I thought they then were, the most innocent intentions were liable to misconstruction. Question. Did he inform you who the person was? Answer. No, he did not. I only learned that it was a gentleman arrived from Paris. I speak from recollection. Question. Did he inform you what gentleman he was? Answer. I do not recollect that he did. Question. Did he ever call upon you after you had declined this conversation? Answer. He did call upon me a few days after, and he read to me a paper which I understood to be written by somebody else, but I cannot say who, and which went to show, as far as I can recollect, that the English nation, however they might differ among themselves, would unite to repel an invasion. If you wish to have your works coldly reviewed, get your intimate friends to write an article on them. I know this from experience. Ward, Lord Dudley, cut up my Columbus in the quarterly, but he afterwards repented of it and apologised to me. I have seen Howard the philanthropist more than once. He was a remarkably mild-looking man. His book on prisons is excellently written. People are not aware that Dr. Price wrote a portion of it. Sir Henry Englefield had a fancy, which some greater men have had, that there was about his person a natural odour of roses and violets. Lady Grenville, hearing of this and loving a joke, exclaimed one day when Sir Henry was present, Bless me, what a smell of violets! Yes, said he with great simplicity, it comes from me. End of section 10